welcome to Mind and Money, the podcast from Interactive Investor, where we talk about how your psychology might be affecting your finances. I'm Becky O'Connor, Head of Pensions and Savings at Interactive Investor, and I'm joined again by Greg Davis, Behavioural Finance Expert at Oxford Risk. This month, we're talking about sustainable investing, or as it's sometimes known in the trade, ESG. That stands for Environmental, Social and Governance Factors. It's a big thing in investment circles these days, so we thought it would be worth talking about some of the reasons for its popularity. I want to start by asking if you think ESG can encourage people to invest more because it gives them a chance to invest in line with their values. Yeah, I I think this is one of the great benefits of ESG investing is not only do you do social good while you're investing, but it can actually make you a better investor at the same at the same time. I mean, for, for all of the behavioral reasons that, that we've discussed before, many people are underinvested. They sit with cash doing nothing year after year after year because it, it's emotionally uncomfortable to take money from somewhere safe, cash, and, and put it into somewhere risky investments, uh, even though in the long term, you're much better off being invested than uninvested. So the question is, how do you get people out of cash? How do you get people over that, that emotional discomfort of getting invested? And invariably, that's about a story. It's about a narrative. It's about people feeling comfortable with it. And if you uh, if you want to do social good with your wealth, the thought that actually this isn't just about risk return trade offs, this isn't just about you know me making financial returns, but by taking this cash and putting it into the markets, I'm also getting an emotional return about the good I'm doing, and I'm I'm getting a social return. This is the sort of narrative that might actually encourage people not just to be doing social good with their wealth, but to be deploying more of their wealth in the first in the first place. And therefore, actually, even on pure financial terms, they're being better investors. Is that in terms of how much they're contributing? Do people who invest in um, ESG stocks and shares contribute more then because they're getting this emotional return too? I don't think we have yet enough evidence to say that they are contributing more. Um, although I do think there is evidence to say that um, some of the money that's going in to social investments or responsible investments um, is coming from cash. So what, people are not selling down typically stuff that they've already got. They're not saying, I'm going to sell this, this, this nasty investment over here to buy this nice investment over here. It is coming from cash. And the implication is that that probably is people investing more or it is people who are new to investing, investing in the first place. So I, I think there is a net contribution, although we do need to recognize that it's fairly early days for this whole responsible investing. So, um, you know, a lot of people are coming to it for the first time. Uh, and I think there's a lot of uh, evolution happening in, in, in the products, in the market, in people's attitudes in this area. Talking about the idea of emotional return, because I think that's really interesting. Is there a way you can quantify emotional return in the same way that you can quantify financial return from investments? I mean, clearly it's very difficult, but, you know, it's very inspiring, the idea of being able to invest in line with your values. Is it that it gives us something to talk to people um, about investing with? Um, Is it that it just you know, makes us feel good in the short term and then we forget about it. What What is emotional return? Um, it, it's it's all of those. So definitely there is a, 
there's a warm glow factor. Um, and, and you know, one, one way of quantifying this, I guess, is to say, if you look at what people do outside of investing in terms of doing social good, people will give money to charity. They will accept a return of minus 100% in order to do some good in the world. And, and what uh, social investing allows us to do is to put capital to work and maybe, um, you know, you can still get a financial return whilst also doing good in, in, in the world. So some of that quantification is you go, how much, how much are people actually giving away? And then you can, if you, if you measure that, you can say, you can from that determine, well, how much emotional return are they getting from that? Because they're losing 100% of returns by giving money to charity. So there's clearly the warm glow thing. You are also right to point to the social thing. I mean, status. Uh, a lot of philanthropic giving um, is is because we feel good about ourselves, but it's also a signaling to to the world out there that we are nice people. Um, and you know, maybe you could argue that that's a slightly less altruistic motivation, but nonetheless, you're still doing good. Um, you're still contributing to the world. And I think we we need to not be too snooty about why people are doing this. We don't all have to be saints. What we would want to do is to go, um, you know, you've got this wealth, you've got this, 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 in, in, these investable assets. Uh, to what degree are you using them sensibly, not just for yourself, but also for the world out there? Don't have to be all saints. That's good news. Um, so it's been <laughs> said that ESG is more appealing for women and younger people. Um, if that is true, um, why why is that? Do you think? So younger people is true. Um, Whereas women, really not so much. All of the data that we have, uh, and this surprises many people because it's, it seems to be a, uh, you know, it, it seems to be a, a truth that people hold that women are more interested in social investing than men. We don't see that in the data that we've got, but we do see that younger people are more interested in it. And I don't think this is necessarily because younger people are nicer than older people, or younger people are necessarily, you know, more socially responsible. I do think it is because they are more willing to approach a new way of doing things. It, the novelty, uh, the, the willingness to do, you know, to engage with ESG investing is easier for them. Whereas older people maybe have these baked in preferences about, well, if I'm going to do social good, I'm going to donate to my favorite charity. So philanthropy is probably something that's a more fixed, a fixed point in their minds. Um, so we do see much more interest amongst, um, amongst younger people. That said, um, it is growing across the board. So as ESG investing, responsible investing has become more and more well known, um, we're seeing increased interests across all age groups and across all wealth levels. So I think that's, that's super encouraging. But to get older people involved in it probably requires a, a higher degree of familiarity than for the, the millennials out there. Um, why do you think but even the idea of investing in a sustainable or socially responsible way puts some people off. I, I'm not sure that it's the idea of doing it that puts people off. I think what puts people off is not knowing how to do it, not knowing how to go about it and thinking that it's just going to be more difficult. It's another thing to consider. You know, it's difficult enough for me to figure out what to do with my finances, even when I'm just thinking about my finances. When you then ask me to think about the social good I'm doing in the world and whether it's E, S or G or, you know, where, where do my, which causes am I supporting? Um, you know, the 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, this complexity comes in 
And we know that when people are faced with complexity, they tend to retreat. So I think that a lot of what puts people off is the, is the jargon, the terminology, the fact that it's new, the fact that it's complicated, it's different, and, and not having a very clear path forward. I mean, there may be people out there, let's be honest, there may be people out there who just who don't want to be particularly nice, who, who don't want to do social good in the world, and therefore it puts them off. But for the most part, I think it's just ease of access and, and, and the complications that are putting people off. Do you think there's some um, sense that people still think you can't really genuinely make money in a sustainable way and that the ESG trend that we've seen in recent years has just been a fad and that's why we've seen growth because it's a trend rather than fundamentally a sound investment? Yeah, no, I think, I think there, are, there are dangers in that, in this, this being a fad. Um, and I would say... It's, it's not so much that I can't invest or make money in a sustainable way, but that there are clearly other non-sustainable ways of doing it that might be appealing if my focus is on finance. So I, I think most people would accept that you can make money in a sustainable way, but there are also these other ways that I might want to hedge my bets in if my financial security is paramount to me. And so... I think for many people, there's perhaps a, a blend out there. Yes, let me do this in a sustainable way, but let me start relatively small and gain comfort with it and familiar, familiarity with it and, and, and grow it up. And even then on the side, there might be these little temptations to go, well, do you know what? if everyone else is now avoiding the sin stocks, everyone else is avoiding the oil companies and the tobacco companies, etc., what that is likely to do over time is to suppress their price relative to the other things. And in the long term, that's likely to drive up their returns. So I think there's always going to be a temptation on the side to the sin stocks. But I, I think it's fairly obvious that one can now make money whilst being sustainable and whilst, you know, whilst being green, etc. And indeed, there are very strong arguments that it's just a sensible way to invest. Because if the things you are investing in are not sustainable, then they are, not, they are not weatherproofed against the future. A company that does not have good governance, the E of ESG, for example, is not one that I'm likely to be able to rely on to navigate the complexities of the world and to deal well with COVID crises, etc. So actually, as a sensible investor, I should want to see sustainability as much as a, as, as a mitigation of risk out there. I want companies that are well-run, good governance. I want companies that are environmentally sustainable because those things are going to become more important in the future. So I think, yes, we, you, know, you, can, you can invest sustainably. Even more than that, you probably should invest sustainably because a large chunk of investments out there are going to be better investments because they're sustainable. But then there's this always little temptation hook on the side. Well, if I just do a little bit of naughty stuff, maybe, maybe that's going to also boost my returns a little. That, that does answer my next question, which is why does anyone ever not invest sustainably? And it is this idea, isn't it, of um, maybe hedging your bets that a non-sustainable investment would deliver a return. And I, I guess the question then is, at what, at what point does somebody tip that way rather than continuing to invest fully sustainably? Um, do you have any sense of the point at which the returns from the hedge become so attractive that somebody who is committed to sustainability starts to make a play the other way? Yeah, I mean, that is a very difficult question to answer. So, you know, 
if if I think I am going to have to maybe sacrifice a little a little upside by doing things right, doing things well, um, then how much does the upside have to be before I would I would go that way? And it depends very much on the person. And we've already seen that if I think about philanthropy, people will sacrifice one hundred percent of not just upside but the whole capital base in order to do good. Um, there are other people out there who just really want to maximize their financial returns. And the question is, can we identify those people in advance? So the, the, the data that we've got, and we've done very extensive studies of this across Asia, Europe, and North America um, uh, with, with, with Oxford Risk, is roughly speaking about a third of the investment population out there, 30% of, of uh, investors are ones that are not very nice in that they, they don't want to do social good or it doesn't matter to them at all. Um, uh, or, and that you could be perfectly altruistic and still not want to invest sustainably if you think I'm happy with doing the good I'm doing in the world through philanthropy. So that's about 30% of the investor population are, are not the low hanging fruit, just um, you know, don't, don't come near me with this stuff. That leaves 70% of the population who we know have at least moderate interest once they know that it's out there, once they know that they can exhibit their values through their investing activities, they are interested in it. Um, and then it's a case of, well, who do we focus on? Now, there's a very interesting group right at the top, about currently around the world, about 15% of investors who are the ones who go, we call them optimizers. They're the ones who go, how do I start to maximize in combination, the balance between my financial outcomes and my social outcomes. And they are willing to, uh, to conceive of there being a, a trade-off to, to think, I'm going to actually take a bit lower returns if I know that I'm getting higher social returns or higher emotional returns at, at the same time. At the moment, that's a relatively small group. But what they're effectively doing is saying, well, instead of giving money away charity and losing returns there, I'd rather think of everything as an integrated whole and try and find the best balance for me. And they tend to be younger, they, 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 they tend to be um, more uh, educated or experienced investors, and it's a relatively small population so far. The rest in the middle at the moment are really, uh, the, 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 the way to approach them is to go, here's the stuff that you can do that is good, or at least here's how you invest without doing anything harmful but it's not likely to cost you anything. You're not likely to have to forego any returns at the moment. So the bulk of the population is still in that, in that middle ground. But the, the behavioral indications are that once people start approaching this, they are perfectly willing to conceive of a trade-off between financial and social returns if we can convince them that that trade-off is real and it is, it is, uh, it is into causes that resonate with them. So for some people, that might be environmental causes. For some people, it might be education. For some people, it, it, um, you know, it might be good governance, etc. But if you can convince people that what they're doing is right for them, it's interesting because it, it turns investing from a means into an end itself. Normally, we invest in order to make money so that we can go and do things with it. And the whole value of, of responsible investing or social investing is some of the things we were going to do with the money we got, we can actually do while we're getting the money in the first place. That, that all makes perfect sense to me. I'm really interested in this 30% of investors, though, 
they're not very nice 30% who um who who may be altruistic through charity giving but aren't interested in doing so through investment and i mean you know logically you would think that giving to charity but then investing in things that may may be harmful um they're they're, they're cancelling each other out so it's not a logical position is it is it just that it's it's um simpler to think of things in buckets like that is that the main reason yeah absolutely this is this isn't about like well there are some people out there who go actually i'm just not interested in social good i just want to maximize my financial returns and those people do exist that's that's you know maybe half of that 30 percent but for the rest it it really isn't about a, a rational or a logical position it is about avoiding complexity we all 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 humans compartmentalize to make our lives easier if we constantly had to think about the trade-offs between the social good I do over here and the financial returns I get over there, we don't know how to calculate how much one unit of emotional um, warm glow is worth to us in pounds and pence. So for many people, it is much easier to separate them and go, you know what, I'm going to keep my finances just about finance, and then I will make some money from that, and then I will decide what I want to do with it, and some of that will be for good causes. And it just makes life much, much easier for people. And at the moment, we're in the situation where this is so new to the industry, to the asset managers and the wealth managers and the financial advisors out there, that for the most part, we don't yet have the tools in place across the industry to take that complexity away from the investor and say, here's how, we, how, here's how you should do it, in a way that we can help you make those trade-offs, so that you don't have to, uh, uh, you don't have to hit that complexity head-on. So, is there a wealth barrier here to some extent? And thinking about the value of financial return versus the finan- the value of emotional return, must surely, to some extent, depend on that individual's existing financial well-being. Yeah, it, it does. Absolutely. So, I mean, we spoke earlier about um, gender and age and, and gender not being uh, that important in these uh, attitudinal differences. The two demographic variables that are important are, are age and wealth. So the wealthier people are, I mean, you could almost see responsible investing or indeed philanthropy as a luxury good. The wealthier you are, the easier it is to be philanthropic, the easier it is to go, I can, I can channel some of my wealth down there because I don't have to worry so much about the security of my family. And that that is vitally important. So we see that levels of interest increase substantially as you go up wealth levels. Um, And I think one of the things there is at at lower wealth levels to make it very clear to people that they can still engage with ESG or responsible investing um, because there are ways of doing it that don't cost you anything. There are ways of doing it that really are just it's the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. If you, can, if you can invest such that first you do no harm, and that doesn't have to cost you anything, you don't have to give up returns to do that, then I think you can, you can get um, pretty much everyone through that door. But definitely there's the, um, is it, is it the, uh, the Augustine prayer, you know, Lord, Lord make me chaste, but not yet. Um, this, this is true, I think, for, for many people who are still navigating um, their the early stages of their financial um, you know, security. If my pressures are to pay off my mortgage or to build security for my family or to get my kids educated, etc., then all this other stuff is nice, but it does tend to fall a bit lower down the ladder. 
So there are many people who would quite reasonably go, I do want to do social good in the world. I do want to engage in, 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 in impact investing. But right now I'm going to focus on building my career, making my family safe, and then I will do it afterwards. And I think that the, the important thing through all of this is we've spoken already about five or six different types of people. And every one of them needs to approach this in their, in their own way. So trying to understand what groups of people are, are out there and which bits of responsible investing uh, products or investments or, or options out there might be best suited to them, that's vitally important. And that's one thing that I don't think we're doing yet very well as an industry. We tend to go, here's a bunch of products that we've painted green. We've you know, you know, got a, a green shelf of investment products. Go and select for yourself. What we're not doing is going, let me think about this. Let me help you, the investor, think about this in the context of your current financial circumstances, um, your attitudes, et cetera, and guide people through that path in a way that feels comfortable to them. That comfort is um, uh, applies not just to somebody's financial circumstances, but also their ethics too, I think. And one thing that worries me slightly is that um, you can um, inadvertently make people feel judged through not already doing some of this stuff um, when you're talking about ESG and the benefits of ESG um, and then um, perhaps making them feel guilty and that in itself being kind of off-putting. I feel like there's quite a lot of emotional management to do with this style of investing too. Yeah, I think you're right uh, and at the moment, I would say a lot of people are approaching it relatively tentatively, and perhaps that is one of the reasons for it. It also gets very quickly um, you know, complicated. You may have people who have different ethical issues. So you know, um, you know, different religions will have different things that are, that, are, that are important to them. So on one hand, you know, you've got Sharia-compliant investment opportunities. Or um, some people might think, for example, um, I, I want to avoid anything that is about gambling, drugs, um, you know, weapons and oil companies, but I'm quite happy with the alcohol companies, for example. And you know, these things can be quite broad brush. You, you cut out anything that anyone labels a sin stock, and very often you're not left with very much because everything, you know, every company out there is using energy, is, is, is using oil, etc. So I think there's a lot of nuance um, under this. And you're absolutely right. We need to be very careful not to put people off by having some sort of holier-than-thou attitude when, when going through it. And, and in fact, asking people to come to conclusions about um, companies or activities that they're not really sure of or they haven't really evolved a clear view of, which is totally understandable, I think. You know, when thinking about some of the stocks that appear in sustainable funds, that may be conflicted in other ways. So you have a lot of big US tech stocks and that that level of difficulty in coming to a decision um, about what you think about something, um, can that be off-putting too? And, and how can people kind of make peace with that for themselves? I think it can. I mean, there are better metrics coming out now. So you're starting to get things where we can have None of these are perfect, and this is all still in development, but we're getting better and better measures, for example, of the CO2 intensity of a given company 
or a given investment. And there are measures, there are measures of this. So if that's what important is, is important to you, you can use that as, as a sort of one measure or metric to judge things. And there are other metrics that are constantly being built and developed. Now at the moment, there's a, there's a few too many of them out there. There's sort of too many measures going on, and that just adds to this complexity, which comes back to this question of how do you how do how do, you, how do we as an industry um, portray the information in a way that helps people to make these decisions that in a way that doesn't feel exceedingly daunting and, and, and horribly complex to them. Because otherwise what will happen is people will just go, well, you know, on the one hand, you're making me feel I should do this. And on the other hand, it's making my life incredibly complicated. And I still don't know if I'm doing the good I want to do because you haven't, you've got too many different measures and too much jargon out there. You're just going to get a wholesale rejection of, of, of the whole thing. So it is important. There's a lot of work going on in improving these metrics and the measures. I suspect over the next few years that will just get better and better and better. And hopefully we'll get also more industry consensus as to if you can, as an individual, understand your own preferences and your own attitudes. And that's one of the things we've, we've been developing uh, at Oxford Risk over the last few years is essentially profiling tools to help people figure out their own attitudes. What is it that's important to you and how, how are you different from everyone else? Um, and once you know that, and we have metrics that can go, well, if, for example, the environmental side is important to you, then build a portfolio that tries to get this measure a bit lower, which might be your CO2 emissions on average across per pound invested, et cetera. Once we can start to build tools that help people to map between what's important to them and the reality of what's in their portfolio, then we make it much, much easier for people to do that. And thinking about some of the terminology, um, there's so much. There's ESG, ethical, sustainable, responsible, stewardship, I could go on. Um, impact. <laughs> impact, yeah. Um, that, you know, that in itself, as you mentioned at the very beginning, can be really off-putting. But what, what do you think works best for people in terms of terminology if you had to pick one <laughs> uh, if i had to pick one it would be sustainable and that is um, not out of a personal preference we've actually asked these questions of thousands of investors um, in uh, well in all these surveys we've been doing around the world what is true is that most people find the terminology confusing and they don't care when you ask them which do you find most familiar, the thing that, that people find the most familiar term is sustainable, which is why I would tend to go for that or perhaps responsible investing. Both of them feel quite broad. What is interesting is that the financial services industry largely keeps going for ESG. Uh, I suspect because it's easy to spell, but um, you know, it, it's 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 an acronym for a start that's that's off-putting, and people then feel I have to know what the what the E, well, I have to know what they mean. And the levels of familiarity, when we asked that question across uh, thousands of investors in the US, less than 15% of the investor base said they felt familiar with the term ESG investing. And yet this is the one that we keep pushing out as, as, as an industry. So I think landing on something fairly easy to assimilate that has a, uh, you know, an actual word in English like sustainable is probably the one that, that, that we should be trying to use uh, as the as the front runner, and we shouldn't worry too much about the precise definition of you know what's included and excluded. We just need at the moment some terms that people can settle on to communicate the fact that this exists, that it is possible to do good with your wealth while you're making money with your wealth. Uh, and I would there pick sustainable. 
There we have it, folks. That's a nice way to round this podcast off. We have decided sustainable is the word and the way to go forwards with ESG investing in general. Greg, thanks so much for joining me for this podcast. I hope that that has helped unpack some of these issues for people and can't wait till next time. In the meantime, please like and subscribe to the Interactive Investor Podcasts. As ever, there's lots more ideas and insight on ii.co.uk. Thanks for listening and see you next time.